So Andy Goodake has come to us from the Anglican Church in Tasmania. He's been a part um, of the Anglican Bush Church Aid uh, Society, is that right? Society. Um, and has been working down there for about eight years now, I think. So Andy's going to tell a little bit of a story about the community he's involved in, in Launceston, which has started around an idea about university students, but has morphed into a whole lot more than that. Um, Andy's also got some background in uh, 3DM and a whole range of discipleship approaches in different parts of the world. So, um, firstly, would you welcome Andy? And let me pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be gathered together, uh, to sit and to wonder and to ponder and to listen to one another's stories. Thank you for the invitation to be a discipling movement, a discipling community. Uh, we pray right now for Andy as he uh, speaks and leads and facilitates our conversations over the next hour and a little bit, uh, that you will speak uh, through his words and that you will speak to us with ideas and possibilities and wonderings that we can take home. Amen. Good afternoon. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here. Uh, as Scott's just said, my name is Andy Goodacre. Uh, I live in Tasmania. As uh, somebody astutely pointed out over uh, dinner last night, it's clear that I'm not originally from Tasmania. Uh, we grew up in a, another small island that you might have heard of, off the northwest coast of France, somewhere uh, known as the United, well, previously United, uh, Kingdom. Uh, so uh, I just went back for three weeks with my wife and two girls for a, for a visit to our family, and we felt affirmed once again that we made a good decision by uh, leaving the UK and coming to live in Australia. So... <laughs> It's very nice to be back, I'd like to say. Scott and I have known uh, one another uh, since about 2010. We, uh, we've been in Launceston, Tasmania since then, and Scott and Sherry and their uh, three kids were in Launceston for three years uh, at the beginning. So we had some great times uh, back then before you lot stole him back, uh, taking our kids on holiday together and enjoying, the, uh, enjoying life down there. It's, it's really good to be here. What I'm hoping to do uh, is uh, just to share... Uh, some stories of hope uh, and some, uh, some encouragements uh, from our last seven years uh, in, in Launceston, in Tasmania. Uh, we we uh, are very much a work in progress. Uh, we moved there, as I'm going to explain, in order to replant what was a very depleted Anglican church. The Anglican diocese there had been trying to recruit somebody daft enough uh, to uh, move uh, to Tasmania to replant a struggling church in the northern suburbs, and uh, they couldn't find anyone until we uh, rocked up uh, and said, look, we'll have a go. Uh, I'm really pleased that we did. It's been a tough journey, but a really rewarding journey. So my hope really this afternoon is just to share some of the story, because it's God's story through his very ordinary people, uh, like all of us, uh, and also just a few things that we've learned along the way. And then there's another session tomorrow where I'll sort of talk a little bit more in detail about some of the tools and the principles uh, and things that we, that we learn to do with that. But before going too much further, um, let me just affirm uh, out loud again that it's really not just me uh, doing this work there in uh, Tasmania. My uh, dear wife, Liz, our eldest daughter, Olivia, our youngest daughter, Caitlin, who, as you can tell from that photo, is no fan of having her photograph taken. Um, we, as a family, have been there uh, since 2010. Three of us uh, since April the 1st, 2010. That was our start day. Uh, I'm not quite sure now whether the fool on April Fool's Day was us or them for calling us. But nevertheless, three of us started on April Fool's Day, and Caitlin joined us uh, just a few months later. 
so uh, that's, uh, that's who we are. Uh, but like I said, what I hope to do during this session uh, is just give a bit of a background to what happened down there in Lonnie. Uh, a story of my own experience where God really did some work in me, which as we all know, if we're called to lead anybody in anything, the first people who God's going to start work on is us. So I'm going to share some of that. A little bit of a glimpse of uh, what's there today. Uh, I've got a short video uh, that's half finished um, uh, of some of the stories of others uh, in our community as well who can't be here uh, today, but just to hear some of their stories. And then the second half of this session, uh, I'll just get into some of the uh, principles, particularly around mission and particularly around disciple making that have undergirded what we've been doing. And then, as I said, tomorrow we'll go into, the, into some of the disciple making stuff in a little bit more uh, detail. Um, I'd love to have questions as well. I'm not quite sure how that will work in a space like this, but maybe if you scribble down stuff, if you want to ask questions or comments, we'll take a couple of pauses along the way uh, and stand up and stretch our legs and uh, also have a bit of time for maybe some Q&A, some dialogue as well, which I would really enjoy. But let's, uh, let's get underway. Very good. So we moved, as I've mentioned, April Fool's Day 2010 uh, to replant what was at the time a fairly downtrodden and uh, depleted parish. I always uh, uh, look back at this photograph because it seems to encapsulate what things felt like at the very beginning of our time in Launceston. What you can see there is a, a, a hall made out of the wonderful construction material that is breeze blocks. Uh, it was a, a gift uh, to the people of North Launceston from the Anglican Church in the early 60s, an era renowned for its architectural wonder and beauty. And uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the time up to our coming to uh, work in this uh, parish in Launceston, the, the bishop and another Anglican church in the centre of town were working hard to rejuvenate the built uh, property of this place so that there could be a fresh beginning for mission and ministry, which is brilliant in theory. The problem in practice was that the company contracted to do this went into liquidation two weeks before we arrived. Uh, so we arrived, in fact, not to a finished building, but to a locked, closed building with a sign saying, danger, keep out. And we weren't allowed to enter the building for the first year because nobody was actually sure who owned it because of legal things that I still, to this day, don't really understand. But having said that, it's also kind of a, a reminder to us that often when we look at some of our churches. I'm happy to grumble about the Anglicans while I'm here and you all are a uniting church, but it might be a familiar story too. We can look at our churches, whether or not they physically have a danger keep out sign in front of them or not, and kind of wonder, what are we really doing here? And could anything good come from the feelings of weariness and exhaustion and hopelessness, which we certainly encountered uh, amongst the people um, who we engage with uh, in this place. We were really blessed. Um, this is being recorded, so I'll get this on record. We were really blessed by our bishop. Ha! Huh, who would have thought it? Um, our previous bishop, who had actually a strong sense that we ought not close this particular church in this northern suburbs of Launceston because this was a place of high social need. These are the lower socioeconomic ends of, of, of Launceston. It's Area where there's significant uh, migration, both uh, refugees from a number of other countries around the world, uh, also people uh, coming to study. There's a campus of the University of Tasmania just over the fence uh, from, from our church building there. So students come from other parts of Tasmania 
and overseas, all parts of the world as well. So it's, it's a lively, dynamic part of town, uh, but also an area where there's great need. And of course, if you're a faith-filled follower of Jesus, then need and opportunity are kind of close together. There's a great opportunity to be good news, to bring hope, to imagine what church could look like in the future. And so our, our, our previous bishop, John Harrower, said, look, we're not closing this one down. We're going to divert some attention, some funds, some resources, uh, so that we can reimagine what church might look like in this context. So praise God. That was a great thing. Um, it has been tough. We've been there for seven years now. Um, and I'm going to unpack some of what happened over the seven years, but uh, it would probably interest you all, even at the beginning, to know that things look quite different now, seven and a half years later, from how they did at the beginning. So we finally were allowed to use the building. I was blessed. There's many miracle stories. Let me just tell you one. Uh, I was blessed to meet a man uh, on a internet motorbike riding forum uh, two, three weeks after we'd arrived there, and I put in my little profile, Anglican minister, you know, let's get the jokes out of the way, at the beginning, and this guy emailed me, said, I need to talk to a minister. Can I talk to you? So I said, sure, I've just moved to be a full-time minister, and we don't have a building for the next 12 months, so yeah, you know, anytime. So we met and had a chat, uh, and talked about a few things that he wanted to talk about, and then he said, oh, by the way, what's this church building that's closed anyway? So I said, oh, yeah, look, it's been refurbished, something about liquidation and builders I don't quite understand. He's like, oh, can I have a look? So I said, yeah, Sure. So we went and had a look uh, together. It turns out this guy, his, his day job was managing all the maintenance and building contracts for all the housing Tasmania, government housing, in the whole north of the state. So every single builder, plumber, painter, decorator in the north of the state wanted to keep on his good side because they got a lot of work. So he said, we'll have this done in three weeks. So as soon as we were allowed back in the building, we didn't have to go and find another contractor. We just paid all these private contractors. He project managed it for us. And within a month or so, we were in. So that was... One very, very encouraging thing that happened along the way. So who knew? Um, I'm sure if I'd have said I was a Uniting Church minister, we'd have had an army of helpers. But, you know, it is, it is what it is. Things look different in there now. As you can see, coffee is crucial. We've uh, numbers of people from the international student community who are part of our community as well. We just did our um, national church life surveys. I think a bunch of you guys would have done that too. I'm no good with stats and with numbers, but I can do pictures. And there was a big picture in the, in the middle of there that said average age 37. I thought, well, that's kind of, that's about us. So kind of makes sense. Maybe I'm the only one who filled the form in. But no, we weren't. But as you can see, we've been really blessed to have people of all ages and generations as part of our community over the last seven years. Kids um, using the old chapel that's there, in, uh, uni students doing stuff on the campus and so on. So it looks very different now. But what I would like to do really is not really talk about, oh, it's been brilliant, it's been great. I actually want to share with you some of the things that we learned along the way. And again, that's because what I hope we'll get out of our time together is a shared sense of hope and encouragement, just like that little story with the builder, that what looks impossible, like a lost cause, and what on earth good could come from here, in the kingdom of God, is pretty often anything but hopeless and lost. Uh, so I certainly, in the first year that we were there, lost what little bit of optimism and hope I might have had uh, at a new beginning and, and a new place. We were about a year in um, before we were able properly to use the, um, the building that was there. Uh, I don't know about... Um, this probably doesn't happen in Queensland, but in Tasmania, we have this phenomenon called winter. And when winter comes about, 
everyone comes here. Oh, the caravan parks of Queensland never looked better than uh, through June, July and August. So our, the congregation which we inherited numbered 10 on a good day. The average age, we didn't even do a survey, whatever that was, but the average age before our family came was well over 70. God bless those faithful, praying uh, people of that generation because they were united in prayer before we came. Their prayer, to be honest, went something like this. Dear God, please don't let the bishop close our church. Amen. Uh, but God heard their prayer. It was, it was a great beginning. But winter comes and uh, Queensland never looked so good. So our, we, we managed to halve the size of our population uh, by be, after we'd been there for just over a year. And the, the caravan parks and tourist industry of Queensland was blessed as a result. You can thank me later for that. But that's kind of tough. When you come to a place, we had a new baby, and that obviously is not the highlight it's a wonderful, beautiful thing, but there's no sleep and very little energy left. So it's, no, it's, not, it's not a high point in energy-wise in the lives of, uh, of anyone. So we were depleted, we were tired, we were weary. Uh, we'd halved the size of our congregation, finally a year plus having been able to get into the building. And I was kind of thinking, look, these lovely folks are great at praying, but where are we going to actually have some friends? You know, we were in our early 30s. At the time, young kids, our family of origins on the other side of the world. Where are we going to get some friends from? I was feeling lonely, discouraged, sorry for myself, um, and all the rest of it. But in the midst of that, again, a couple of things happened which really encouraged me. The first of them um, was I stumbled across a group of other pastors in our city from all other denominations who were meeting to pray once a month. Somebody uh, tipped me off that this existed. I don't believe it was an Anglican colleague, to be honest. They weren't involved. I'll save that for another day. This is being recorded. Um, But uh, somebody tipped me off that this meeting was happening. I went along and it was really encouraging because I found, you know, a handful of other followers of Jesus leading churches, praying for the city, who welcomed me. Uh, The sun came out that morning, I remember quite clearly, as a remarkable event. Um, We went for good coffee afterwards, which always does me the world of good as well. And I thought, you know, God, this is not as bad as I've been thinking. Look, I can work with these guys. They've just prayed for me. The sun's come out. There's good coffee. Okay, I'll trust you. We'll give it a go. Um, interestingly, during that morning, uh, one other pastor was there who's involved, it turned out, with the Christian radio station uh, in Launceston, and he was wandering around with his iPhone, recording short interviews with uh, the pastors of the city, asking people, what can people expect when, if, when they come to your church at Easter to play on the radio? Now, I thought, oh, I said, good job he's got no idea who I am, because if I answer that question, honestly... Nobody wants to put that on the radio. Anyway, um, he went around and said, Andy, Andy, come here. I'll ask you this question too. I thought, crumbs, what am I going to say? It's, there's no one there. It's cold. When you put the kettle on, the heater goes off. <laughs> That's a, there's an ethical dilemma. If ever there was one, isn't there? When you put the heater back on, the kettle... Oh, this, what can people expect when they come to your church? Well, I don't know. I, don't, I might not even be there by Easter. Anyway, um, somewhere along the line, I inherited the gift, of the, the gift of the gab, my dad used to call it. And so quickly thinking on my feet, I thought, what if I answer a slightly different question? So I said, he said, what would people expect if they come to your church for Easter? And I said, 
We hope to become a church where, uh, that's family-friendly, that's good news for the northern suburbs of Launceston, that blesses and serves the local community, that people of all ages come together to worship Jesus. Um, he said, great, thank you very much, and moved on. I thought, oh, is that allowed? That's kind of a lie. Oh, it's okay, they're all in Queensland. None of my parishioners will hear. We're good, we're fine, great. Put that behind us. Anyway, interesting thing. Kind of from, from that little season onwards, things perked up a little bit. I mean, winter was kind of moving on. The sun was out again. I had some friends, had some coffee. Thought, you know what? We might be in for a, in for a shot here. Pushed on another couple of months. And then the dead of winter. Ugh, really cold, really miserable. People leave England uh, because it's grey. And they come to other countries because the sun shines. So I thought, what are we doing in Tasmania? We should have gone to Queensland. Would have been loads better. So there we are, one Sunday morning, and I'm thinking, I still can't. I keep trying. I keep pushing. I keep trying to pull my energy together. But it's not really working. I don't know, God. Are you sure we're in the right place? Do you really want us to be here? Um, I said to Liz, my wife, who was, I'm sure, putting up with me, grumbling, and putting up with a one-year-old daughter and a four-year-old and all that. So I'm just going to pop out in the car. <laughs> out I scamper, get in our old rusty Land Rover, which palms all over Australia try to keep running much longer than they should. Uh, drove out into the hills and I sort of thought, right, I'm going to do a bit of an argument with God. God, why are we here? I've got a wife, I've got two kids. What on earth did you put us here for? It's hopeless. I've got no chance. I, I mean, I, I know a thing or two, but I can't build. Oh, what, what on earth have you got us here for? And I remember really clearly saying, God, if you really want me to be here, would you let me know? Just tell me. I'll be obedient. I'll stick at it, but I'm kind of not even sure whether we're in the right place. Anyway, driving out in my um, little Land Rover into the, into the hills there in the northern suburbs, put the, um, put the radio on and it's Triple J or something, so not on Sunday morning. So I fiddled around and found the, this um, Christian radio station, the, the one that the chap had interviewed me from before that I didn't know existed and hadn't ever listened to before. Sorry if you're involved in Christian radio. And, and I put the radio on and they're playing hymns and, and old songs. And um, uh, there's a lovely friend of mine, an uh, older lady, announcing the hymns on the radio. And they said, and now we're going to play... I'm pretty sure it was a Graham Kendrick hymn from the 80s. I don't think it was Shine, Jesus, Shine, but it was in that, in that genre. And I thought, you know what? I remember singing that when I was at school. Not my cup of tea and music. But I remember singing that at school. And maybe God's saying, look, I was with you then. And I'm still with you now. Pull yourself together. Get on with it. I thought, maybe that's all I needed. You know, turn the, turn the radio on and have that, have that song and remember it didn't look flash, it didn't sound great, it wasn't cool, but it's all about Jesus. That'll do me. Okay. Turned around, sort of bucking up my ideas a little bit. Uh, and then Jan, who's on the radio, says, and now at 9.30, and I'm, I'm half an hour away and church started at 10, so I needed to get a move on. Now at 9.30, we've got our church connect slot. Oh, I don't know what this is. What's this all about? She says, and this week, we've got an interview with the Reverend Andy Goodacre from Barney's Anglican Church, North Launceston. I'm thinking, what interview? 
turns out they recycle their material. It doesn't matter if it's Easter or not, we can play this any time of the year. So there's my voice on the radio saying, we hope to become a church that is good news for the people of Launceston, that reaches all ages, that is, is good news, is friendly, is family, it's all about Jesus. Now, I started crying at this point, like four times a year, we blokes do that. This was one of my four times a year where I was going to cry. I'm like, God, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm in. We're all in. Look, there's nothing here that looks like it makes sense to me. But we're in. So we went, I drove back quickly, um, and um, we had our five or six old people there. I don't know whether this happens in any churches here, but even though there was only five or six of us, we all sat apart from each other. <laughs> one, one sort of here, one three rows back here. One sort of over here, I thought, look, I've got nothing to lose. Uh, th- thankfully, this is all I did. I- I've got nothing to lose. God said we're here. It's like, right, I'm just going to get rid of all these chairs today. Somebody had given us four sofas. I think they came from a NAB bank refit or something. There's four sofas in the corner that no one was using. Like, we're just going to get these sofas out. We put the sofas one, two, three, four around in a circle in the middle, and the five, six, seven of us sat down together. And I said, look, we're just going to do it a little bit different today. I just want us to go around and just share with each other one thing we're thankful to God for, one thing we're asking God for. I thought, they're going to shoot me. This is not in the prayer book. I don't care anymore. Let's see what happens. Um, and you know what? Every single person was genuinely thankful to God for something. Every single person had a genuine thing on their heart to pray for. So we shared those things with each other, and we said thank you to God together for the good stuff. And then we shared the things we were praying for, and we prayed together for the tough stuff. There's no rocket science involved in that, I can assure you. But that is the Sunday that I look back on and go, that was when stuff changed. Because it stopped being about, I need to come up with a brilliant sermon for the six folks that are there. It stopped being about, I'll quickly run over here and play the piano. And it just started being about people and relationships And Jesus, probably the other order, but still. We did it again the next Sunday. I was kind of weary. I thought that was quite good. Let's do that again. We did it again the Sunday afterwards. And then the interesting thing is that other people came. I have no idea where they came from. I doubt they've been listening to the Christian radio station. But a family whose daughter was at preschool with our daughter came one Sunday. The guy who'd helped us rebuild it all brought his wife and three kids the Sunday after that. And I'm thinking, right, now I need, all we needed to do for that season was sit on sofas, have a cup of tea, share with each other what we were thankful to God for, share with each other what we wanted to ask God for. We started actually saying, you know, last week I prayed that my eye, my eye operation would go well. It's great. It, it went really well. The doctors were really happy. And last week we prayed that my son, who was a bit poorly, would get well. He's well again. So we had answers to prayer to be thankful for and new things to pray for. And honestly, there's a whole lot of good stuff that's gone on since. But the the switch for me was, God, I'm desperate. I can't do it. Please help. Finally, I imagine, God said, he's realized that. (laughs) Okay, here's what I want you to do. Keep it really simple. Put Jesus at the center. Share your lives with each other. And we kind of went from there, really. So... That's sort of a year, a year and a half in by the time that that was happening. A whole lot of stuff has happened since then. I sh- showed you some 
pictures there at the beginning of what things look like now. It's been a right old learning curve because the way that you lead a small group, saying thank you and what are we asking God for, it's a different way of leading from when you've got 20 people, you would know us. When you've got 40, 50, 60 people. So it's been a whole lot of work. But the thing that I would take as a principle from that whole journey was, God, help. What are you asking me to do? Okay, I'll try and do that. I'm never going to fill a book with that. I'm not going to try, to be honest. But our story now, when I watch, look at those photos, and in a moment or two, uh, watch a video, the, 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 the core thing at the heart of all of that was Jesus loves the church far more than any of us. Jesus longs for there to be a healthy, good news, gospel, preaching and serving community of followers in those northern suburbs of Launceston far more than I did, far more even than the prayerful folks who were before me did, far more than our bishop did. He says in his word, I will build my church. And as we're going to get to later on, he gives us a different job. Go and make disciples. I had learned those things upside down. My job's to build the church. My job's to grow the church. My job's to be slick enough and smart enough and clever enough that I'll pull a crowd. Well, I'm not sure that that works anyway, but it definitely doesn't work in the winter in the northern suburbs of Launceston. God, what else is there? Listen, trust, and obey. So that, that was a powerful season and a powerful experience. And I realized after that, I just have to be faithful to God and keep telling people that story because it doesn't make me look good and it does make Jesus look good. And hopefully any of us that are here thinking what good could come from where we are, well, look, what good could come from Nazareth turned out quite well in the end. So that's a little bit, it's a real rocky journey, absolutely. What I wanted to do uh, next, just before sort of digging into a bit of theology, missiology and all the rest of it, you've heard a bit of my story and you've heard uh, a little bit of the background and where we got to. We're in the process of making a video at the moment. I've got a bit of a rough edit of some of the stories here. One of the reasons that we're making it is to say thank you to the Bush Church Aid Society who gave us financial support through most of those uh, seven years. Uh, and the second, uh, another reason is to uh, give thanks to, to God with some of the stories. A third reason is we're also trying to just generate a bit of income. So there's a little frame at the end with me saying we'd love your financial support. Please ignore that today because my job here is not to go home with a, with a bit of change in my pocket. My job is to give glory to God. So ignore the last 30 seconds. Everything else I think you'll, might, you'll find quite encouraging. So if we can uh, put other videos on here. Barney's is the sort of church that is interested in helping people grow into the best person they can be. Hi there, my name's Andy. And I'm Liz. We've uh, made a short film just to uh, capture some of the stories uh, of our seven years here in Tasmania as we've been replanting Barney's Anglican Church. That real sense that Barney's is about people and not projects. And projects do happen, but the focus and emphasis in them are the people. And we, it's easy to say that, but it actually happens. Barney's does it. It teaches you how to do it and then you do it while they're figuring out how to do it yourself. And it's very Jesus-like when you read the Gospels, which is good and people are changing and they've become more confident. They're stepping up into roles of leadership and all that, which is really encouraging to see. The space at Barney's is a place that's not easy to be disengaged with um, what's going on around you. So it's a place where you have to engage in what people are kind of saying and um, the questions that people are asking 
and they're all good questions and it makes for a quite positive environment where uh, you tend not to stay the same but in a positive way you consider what God's saying to you personally. Look I've seen a lot of a lot of people come and come and go through Barnes because we're so close to the uni we do have a big uh, uni population come and visit us and seeing uh, people like Michael and some of his fellow Kenyans grow um, over the last four years have been been an amazing experience to, to both watch it and be involved in even small parts through men's breakfast and uh, just fellowship with them. Probably I would say I was fairly spiritually dead before I came. I've seen a lot of change um, in really in a big way in how I hear from God and learn from God. Yeah, since joining Barney's, I think, you know, God has really brought me alive. His love and uh, His grace and mercy and just all those things and all those promises. Life is easier and the load is lighter when you are yoked with Jesus. And I, and I just feel I'm living that more now. And I think, yeah, people are seeing that too. I hope you've been really encouraged hearing some of the stories of what God's been doing through our Barnes community over the last seven years. Please support us as we... I can do it myself. There's my video editing. Anyway, you can see where it was going. Yeah, thank you. I got that for the first... I watched that for the first time last night and I thought, I've got to have a break after that video because otherwise I shall cry instead of talking and I've only cried... I've cried three times this year already, so running out. So what, what I'd love to do, because I'm going to change tack slightly now, but we, it's a long time this afternoon, so I'd like to just hit pause. Uh, I'd love for us just for a minute or two, just maybe to be a bit quiet and just think, God, out of everything that, that he's said so far, is the one thing you're underlining that I ought to pay attention to, for me personally, for my ministry, my context. So maybe just a couple of minutes, stop, stop listening to me, uh, listen to God. God, what are you grabbing my attention with? Just a couple of minutes reflecting, maybe jotting it down. All right. Thanks for doing that. I heard some great questions coming up. And uh, I'm going to give a, a little slot for that at the end. And also, uh, I'm, I'm here for the whole of this weekend and uh, just have these two sessions and then space. So if you want to... Uh, have a chat at any time through the weekend, not during the official business sessions of the Synod, I understand. No, 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 but whenever... Uh, I'd be more than happy to do that, because I quite like meeting people and chatting and, and praying with folks and stuff. Anyway, very good. Well, uh, John down the front here just asked a really, really great question, uh, which went to... Uh, so you had a great new building, and people started coming, so... What was the link? Did they just come because there was a new building or did people come for other reasons and, and so on? What, what I want to do in the second half of our session today is begin to paint big, broad brush, brush strokes uh, in terms of the kind of thinking and theology, particularly theology of mission and disciple-making that has shaped me and has shaped others in our team and is, has shaped... The, the church community and uh, if, if there was an A plus B equals C formula from how to go from one to the other then you know well I've not found out what it is so this isn't push here and therefore we'll get this results but as I look back and reflect some of the things which have been really crucial to us um, were, were some of the these uh, kind of 
bits of theology and principles that I just want to unpack with us uh, secondly today. So we identified um, during the last few years that our primary calling was that as a church community, we're called to be God's missionary people seeing lives transformed. Every one of those words is important. But if we were going to divide it into two, the first half is we're called as the church to be God's missionary people. And if we're God's missionary people, then there's going to be change in society, change in the world, and change in us. And our longing and our hope and our vision is that as we put emphasis not on running a great slick-looking show so that people will come to us, but rather understanding God as a missionary God who so loved the world that he sent his son, and, and we join in with that, things are going to start looking a little bit different. So the second part is just a bit of sort of broad brushstrokes theologically. I don't know, I'm expecting that most of this is familiar to most of us, but again, it's just really important to say there's this kind of worldview and paradigm and thinking that must shape how we do church. Um, a man of mine just yesterday was reminding me of the thing that, first of all, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who calls us to go into all the world and make disciples, and that must then shape the way we do church. Or if you want it in fancy theological language, our Christology must shape our missiology, which in turn must shape our ecclesiology. I prefer it in English, but, you know. Sounds good with all the ologies. But the point's massive. And actually, when I look back through our history, uh, our recent history certainly, you could be forgiven for thinking that we were operating the other way around. That actually, well, the way we do church, our ecclesiology comes first. And secondly, let's see whether we can reach out to any people. Now, there's lots of nuance in all of that and all the rest of it. But for us, it's been really, really important to say, number one, Jesus. Number two, the last, the least, and the lost. Number three, how we then live together as God's people. A few bits uh, that have just been kind of key for, for us along the way. Understanding the gospel as the good news of the kingdom, the holistic nature of our gospel, which includes the massively significant good news about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection in our place and the salvation that comes through that and yet also takes into account the fact that the gospel is good news is what it means and it ought look like feel like and be good news for all kinds of people in all kinds of places all the way around us all of these are theological courses in and of themselves and we're not going to go in in that much detail today but that's kind of important isn't it we're followers of Jesus. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. And we kind of got to be careful that we continue to preach the good news of the kingdom, not the good news of something that's a bit smaller than that. So that's one piece, kingdom uh, theology and all that's encompassed in that. The words of Jesus, some, somebody said, oh, it was probably John Wimber, the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the ways of Jesus. You know, I can remember that more easily than theologies. The words of Jesus are crucial. They're life-changing and transforming. The works of Jesus were miraculous. And we've experienced some of that. And I'm sure if we went around here, we'd have experiences of people here experiencing Jesus powerfully transforming their lives in all kinds of ways today. And the ways of Jesus. Jesus was a servant. He didn't lord it over those who followed him. Jesus was humble. 
That's hard. And so on. The words, the works, and the ways, which is all kind of encompassed in that. Second one, this kind of would be familiar, I'm sure, to, to a bunch of us as well. But just coming again to realize that mission's not an 18th century invention of the Western church because suddenly they thought, well, we're sorted now where we are, so let's go and sort out everyone else. And I'm being naughty on purpose. But mission didn't start then. Mission started when God created the world and put humans there who could have a relationship with him and said, it's very good. And mission continues. For example, there's three references on there and there's millions. Uh, God's covenant with Abraham wasn't I will bless you. Have a nice day. God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is you and all of your descendants will be as numerous as all the stars in the sky. I will bless you in order that you will be a blessing, not just to the people that are like you, but to all nations. God, the missionary God, calling the people of Israel to be his people, not because he didn't love anybody else, but because he loved everybody else and wanted the people of Israel to be his missionary people, living in a way that pointed to God and gave people hope and good news that they could have a relationship with him too. John 3.16, we know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his son into the world. The ultimate act of mission the ultimate act of God not going, well, I'm fine here, but of giving and sacrificing and sending himself for our sake, for the sake of humanity, all of humanity. I'm, sometimes I have caught myself living and following a Jesus that didn't give of himself, but actually sat back and was comfortable. Sometimes I look at the way that I've lived as a follower, so-called, of Jesus and think I'm probably more like a fan than a follower. If you think of a, of a soccer game, the, the place we're called to be is on the field. And I don't know about you, but there are definitely times where I've thought, I quite like it here. Oh, I'm a bit weary and a bit tired. And maybe I'll just sit down and a, a year or two or three has gone past. But that's not God. That's not the calling of us as followers of, of Jesus and, and those reconciled to God. It's to imitate Jesus, as well as we are able, which includes the going and the being sent. So I'm in a conversation with, um, with Steve, I think, over, over lunch and just saying, you know, we've come to realize that when we use the word mission, we have to also remind ourselves that we don't only mean the kind of mission where you get on the plane and go overseas. We also mean the kind of mission where you just sort of put your head over the back fence and everything in between, crossing the oceans and crossing the street. I'm not excluding in any way the massive importance of us going to other places across cultural boundaries and engaging in sharing and telling of the kingdom and the good news about Jesus, but not at the exclusion of the people that live next door and down the road and in the other parts of our city. And I think that's faithful to Jesus, who was sent. And as then Jesus explicitly says, John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Which is kind of like what I remembered in that Land Rover experience. I feel like I'm sent, but I can't do it by myself. But Jesus breathed on them and said, here, I give you my Holy Spirit. So mission is not our idea. It's God's. It always has been. We've 
missed it at times. We've grabbed hold of it with both hands at times. In your church's history, in my church's history, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly in all of it. But here and now today, our calling is as God's missionary people, afresh and again, where I live and where you live. And if you like theology, then you'll note that that's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian. It's not just a bit. The whole of God is all about mission. Go quickly through this, but again, you know, the the Gospels, you know, Matthew presents Jesus as the king on mission. Mark presents him as the servant on mission. Luke presents him as the perfect man on mission. John presents him as God on mission. All of those epistles through the New Testament against the message of mission. Dealing with conflict and church discipline while we're on mission. Defending the gospel mission from religiosity. I might go there again. Uh, Book of Ephesians emphasizes the church on mission. The pastoral epistles describe the leaders of a mission. Revelation describes to us the completion and the goal of mission. I did a bit of work at Fuller uh, Seminary. We had a professor there who challenged us to find five consecutive chapters anywhere in Scripture where the theme of mission was not present. So uh, during the rest of your synod here, should you, you know, your mind wander, maybe see if you can find some. We didn't manage it, but I'll leave that one with you. But the point is, mission was not our idea. It was never supposed to be just a thing we bolt on to business as we've always known it. It was the heartbeat of God from the beginning of creation, from the sending of his son and the pouring out of his spirit. And it'll be great of us, great for us to help one another continue to have that front and center. Again, just some of the, some of the church piece here as well. Um, there's a few Anglican archbishops up there. I, I, in, in our Anglican context, I try to sound a bit Anglican from time to time. This, this, this is about the extent of it, to be honest. Uh, but Rowan Williams, a missiologist and, and thinker and previous archbishop of Canterbury, is quite well known now for having said, it's not the church of God that has a mission, but the God of mission who has a church. It's not the church of God that has a mission, but the God of mission who has a church. Uh, William Temple, he's another uh, naughty Archbishop of Canterbury, who said, the church is the only institution on earth which exists for the benefit of its non-members. Now that one hit me harder between the eyes than the first one. But it's kind of true. I've been in a swimming club. Who's the swimming club for? The swimmers. Uh, I would have liked to have been, but never quite got selected, to have been in a soccer club. Who's the soccer club for? The soccer players. uh, My mum is in a, what do you call it, kind of a needlework club. Who's that for? The grandkids. And the, uh, the people who are in the needlework club. But the church, who's that for? Christians. Everyone else. That's our reason of existing. That's the German theologian Emil Brunner. The church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. And we started with five or six elderly people in my family. I mean, I had time to read a few books. I'll give you that. But as I sat there thinking, God, why is it so small? And why is it not growing? And why aren't more people coming? I actually realized, Andy, the point isn't that you build it so that they will come. Is that Field of Dreams? One of those movies, if you build it, they will come. 
the, the, the purpose is that Jesus was sent. And we're his disciples, his followers, supposed to do the same stuff. To go and to connect and to bless and to serve and to speak of Jesus. So that's, again, a quick run through what I have gleaned from a few books that are that size, that are really good, but they're the bits I can remember, and they're the bits that shape our day-to-day and week-to-week and month-to-month working as a community and as a church of God. So again, it's a lot of listening. Just going to hit pause. What's God getting your attention with? Out of the last little run-through there, half an hour of missiology and theology and ecclesiology and Christology and what's God just reminded you of that you heard once and maybe forgot and have just remembered again what struck, struck you for the first time what confronted you just make a note because God will be getting your attention or maybe just again a couple of minutes just quietly what stood out All right, there's some really good questions that I'm getting, uh, hearing from different people here as well. I've got, um, I'll try and do this last little bit crisply because I think it just segues us into tomorrow and then I'd just like to do one or two questions but I'm pretty sure at 3.30 something else is going to happen uh, in here. But um, thanks for doing that. Thank you for your engagement. And again, what I, I can't listen for 90 minutes. My wife will tell you I struggle to listen for five minutes. So one of the reasons that I keep stopping is because it helps us just to summarize. Look, I've just heard a half an hour's worth of stuff. What are one or two things that really resonated for me? Because it'll only ever be the one or two things that we actually remember long enough to do something with. Uh, So that's one really important reason for doing that. And that principle of what's God saying And what is God asking us to do in response has been a crucial uh, framework for us in thinking about discipleship and disciple-making, which I'm going to mostly share a little bit about tomorrow. But what what I do kind of want to leave us with is kind of the third part of, uh, of today is a fairly simple and yet very difficult framework. Uh, that, again, has, has undergirded our thinking around discipleship and disciple-making and mission. So all models are limited, of course, and four words on, that's a whiteboard, as you can see, this is white, and normally I'd like to draw this stuff, but I didn't think that was going to work today. In the clearest summary form that I can think of, this has been my paradigm, our paradigm, and we've learned this from a bunch of people in different places, that we've sought to put into practice as our community at Barney's has grown as it's grown more passionate about reaching the last, the least, and the lost, more passionate about discipleship, more passionate about mission. So what I've talked about firstly this afternoon was mission, uh, which you can see there in that, in that third block. God's the God of mission. Uh, the church, uh, we're called to be God's missionary people. The church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. They all, they, they, that that was, is what got me into ministry in the first place. But I still get stuck going, so what do I do next? What do I do first? Rowan Williams' wonderful quote, what do I do with that on Monday morning? And what I've come to realize is that actually mission is a result 
of something else. That's been my experience, that Jesus actually was quite clear when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. That's something really important and worth paying attention to. So what we've come to realize, and this is not just Andy by any means, this is the wisdom of many people who I've had the blessing of learning from, being mentored by, um, and then we've seen this be true in our context as well, that we, for the majority of the last seven years, put the majority of our energy actually into that bottom building block. Discipleship. Disciple making. What's God saying this week? What's God asking you to do this week? A disciple is a learner. There's methetes, I think, in the Greek. And it's the, thing, it, it's, the, it's the people on the field playing the game rather than the fans in the stadium having a watch. Now, tomorrow's session is unpacking some more of the nuts and bolts and tools that we've used. I'm just doing big, broad brushstrokes this afternoon. But we realized if I start going and doing mission by myself, which I did, that's a good thing to do but I did not spend most of my time doing that. I spent a bunch of my time doing that at the beginning, but increasingly as the church has grown, I've actually realized it's really important to raise up, build up, teach, train, encourage, and equip other people to do mission with me and in community and in team with one another. And so what we've actually realized is that, put Andy, put your energy into making disciples. Who can make disciples? Who can make disciples? There's multiplication going on. 2 Timothy 2.2, I think it is. Paul says to Timothy, the the gospel, the, the, the good news that I've entrusted to you, teach it to others, who will teach it to others, who will teach it to others. That's not the NIV translation. That's what I can remember. But 2 Timothy 2.2. It's four generations of good news being passed on in one verse. So if I read a lot of books about mission, and I go and do a lot of mission... There's only one generation, and it's very, very hard to copy. But if I spend my time and energy thinking, how can I raise up God's people in a way that they can raise up other people, in a way that they can raise up other people, we're going to see powerful movements of mission released. I'm straying into tomorrow's territory. Anyway, we put a lot of energy in there. What we realized is we created a culture and helped really ordinary people like you and me to understand what is it God's getting my attention with and what is it he's asking me to do about it and process that together in community, we discovered people being raised up as leaders. Not seminary professors or popes or archbishops, but leaders who actually began to have a sense of calling to stick their head over their back fence and bless and serve the people who live next door, who actually discovered God's calling me to mentor a kid in our local high school, who actually felt God's calling me to build a little team and create a cafe where people who don't have English as a first language can come and practice their English, who actually felt like God is calling me and my mate to have a barbecue in the park on Saturdays and invite lonely men from our community to just come and hang out with us. None of those things were my idea, even though I'm the leader of the church. We just created an environment where people can grow as leaders, which comes from them being followers, not of me, but of Jesus. 
All those things in the foundations of what we do, you can't stop the mission from happening. Because now it's, we've, uh, we've released this kind of kingdom of God thing. It's kind of dangerous. And it's very, very hard to control and keep tidy. Praise the Lord. But we just keep on going back, and now we've got a f- you've got generations of people, the ones you saw in that video there, and they're leading communities with their brothers and sisters in Christ that are blessing and serving the last, the least, and the lost. And people are coming to faith. And when those people come to faith, they know how to disciple them. I can sit back and with a cocktail, you know, play on my iPhone. I don't even want to. I don't even wish that was true. But discipleship has a foundation, and that's what we're going to spend some time on tomorrow. Out of that discipling culture, leaders have emerged, and we've helped, and we've coached, and we've mentored, and we've trained, but we haven't made them leaders. Jesus has done that, and we've tried to support along the way. And if you've got disciples who are making disciples, and people who are having a sense of call, and a vision and a passion for mission, that mission just happens. And if we are smart and we try and do this the way that Jesus did, then the mission doesn't just stop with that generation, but it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And so, movement. That's what I'm really in this for. I don't care how big our church grows. I'm not really interested. My mate Harvey, who you saw on the video, he said, what I like about Barney's, Andy, is you're not really bothered about growing a big church, but you're really bothered about growing big people. I thought, that's a good, I love that. That's good. (laughs) I reckon Jesus was the same. And I can't think of much else I'd rather spend my time doing than creating this kind of momentum and movement. Anyway, all of this is tomorrow. There's a little blue dotted line across there. And the little blue dotted line is kind of supposed to indicate above ground and below ground. See, the temptation, if you're uh, a leader and someone, a bishop says, I want you to replant this church, the temptation is, right, I better look good. Better make sure it looks like I'm doing a good job and that people can see there's busyness going on in the church and there's some programs happening and all the rest of it. Thankfully, early in to our time there, Uh, friends and mentors and folks from other places just shared this with me and I realized, Andy, don't spend your energy trying to look good above the ground. Spend your energy investing into people, the ones and the twos, the threes, the few for the sake of the many, because that worked for Jesus. Uh, This is the other option. We We spend lots of energy trying to run big events. Nothing wrong with them. It's all about priorities. We spend lots of uh, time and energy. I tried this in the UK. It works for a while. Um, do a big thing and get lots of people to come. Pull a big crowd. If only that bread and fish thing was reproducible. That would be brilliant. 5,000 people. Hey, Now we're in business. Okay, now we need a few programs set up. You know, you can go and fetch bread every week. Maybe you could bake some bread. If you guys can go and, like, you know, build some boats and start doing some fishing, that would be great. No, we don't have any money to pay you. No, but volunteer, that would be good. Why don't you come and volunteer? We'll have rosters and organize. And, uh, and somewhere underneath the whole thing is a little minister going, oh, oh, God, this is really heavy. I don't think I can keep doing it much longer, so I'll stop. I know I'm being a little bit mischievous, but often this is what we try and do. It's what I've tried to do. 
And it's what my friends and colleagues, some of them still are trying to do, and others see now. Anyway, I reckon there's a whole lot of value in this. And the starting place being the same, same stuff that Jesus did. Come follow me, the one, the two, the three, real ordinary working class men and women. Hang out with me. I'll share my life with you. I'll start teaching you the same sort of stuff that I do so that you can do it too. And all of that is where we're going to end up tomorrow. My, my hope, as I said at the beginning, was to kind of encourage and inspire. Somebody uh, once uh, described the, um, the, the prophet as both an inspiration and an irritant. And uh, so uh, if you've been irritated, then uh, I'm probably happy about that as well. If you've been inspired, then I'm very happy about that. Like I said, I'm going to be around, so I'd love to have in-depth conversations with folks who would, who would value that. There's just three questions that people have written down, which I'll just sort of touch on uh, in this last uh, five, eight minutes that we've got. Uh, but I really like questions, and I would encourage us to ask many. But uh, here are a few. Um, so um, let's start with this one. Um, this is from the couple of guys over here. Did you experience resistance to change? And how did you deal with it? I'm sure there's nobody who was wondering that uh, question. Yes, we did. From all kinds of places, including here. Somebody recently said, oh, the good news is change is here to stay, uh, which is true. But of course, humans, we're, mostly we're not. We don't like change because it, it can be scary. We fear the stuff that we've held precious is under threat. We're creatures of habit. The older we get, the more so. Uh, my kids will tell you that their dad is not a fan of change at all, which is kind of weird when you think about all the ministry stuff we're doing. But, Dad, come on, catch up. No one's on Facebook anymore. Oh, I like Facebook. What are you talking about? So there were a couple, yes, we did experience um, resistance. There are no quick and easy answers. But one thing which really helped us, again, thank, praise God for bishops. Um, in our Anglican diocese there in Tasmania, we put through our synod, before we were even there, before I was even there, legislation which originally was designed for churches that could no longer comply with all of the requirements of our administration ordinances. You know, we ask for a certain number of people in elected positions. What do you do if there's less than that in your church? We ask for certain amounts of, uh, of financing, etc. What do you do if you can't comply with that anymore? So we, I don't know anything about what you guys are doing here, so I'm talking entirely ignorantly. Um, but what we did was initially we had legislation which said, okay, we're going to create um, parishes under review. And they're, they're parishes that need a bit outside support, help in order to reimagine their lives or at the very least keep doing what they were already doing. So we became one of those, um, which I was kind of happy about, but the few people there weren't necessarily that enamored with because it sounds like you're in trouble. Special measures, like a failing school. Oh, we are in special measures. But the thing is, that gave us freedom to begin reimagining without losing lots of energy and time trying to comply with requirements that we just couldn't do. 
Anyway, what we then realized, and again, our previous bishop was one of the key people within all of this. He said, we shouldn't just think of this as special measures for failing churches. We should think of this as a way of releasing new life and new possibilities and new opportunities. So again, and this was all at the legislative level, which 10 years ago I thought was a waste of time. I'm pretty glad it happens now. Um, but we then said, okay, we're going to create special ministry districts. So if your parish votes legally to stop being a parish and instead become a special ministry district, new possibilities emerge. So that was on the synod and legislation level. That was really, really helpful. So I'm so thankful and grateful that there are people like yourselves who put all the time, the energy, and the effort into crafting that stuff because it actually worked and actually released mission and ministry. So that was a bishop that I was thankful for. I was also thankful for an archdeacon. Look at this. They never hear me say this back in Tassie. I was really grateful for an archdeacon who was another sort of senior leader over the smaller area um, who one, turns out, one Sunday when we were on holiday, kind of a year in, and I'd asked him if he could take the service while we were away. It turns out what he did when he went along on this Sunday was he said, okay, I want you all to listen carefully. Andy and Liz are going to do things quite differently here. And I think that's really good. If you don't like the different things that they do, that's fine. You can go to uh, worship at this church at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning, or this church at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. He was a lovely man, this archdeacon. He, he was old and faithful and loved the Lord. And I did not know that that's what he was going to do. But how cool is that? So any, you don't have archdeacons, but anybody who might be able to pull off something like that for these guys or anybody else, go for it. But the thing is that after that, the second question on these pieces of paper which have blown all over the place now, the second question is what happened to the old people who were, who were with you when you started? That was, that was your question over there. Uh, and all of the above. So some of them did very graciously and very generously say, look, we're going to go, we want traditional Anglican liturgical worship, so we're going to go uh, and go to this church down there, and that was, was wonderful. Others of them came back from Queensland and said, you know, we quite like it now. Because we, we, actually, this is the first time I've ever imagined that my grandkids might want to come to church. And a few of them did. And some of them are in glory now, and I hope they're praying for us, uh, and, and, and I'm sure they are. That, for me, so relationship's massive. It's very easy to go, that old way is rubbish. And of course it's not, because every single one of us is a Christian because of tradition. Somebody somewhere told somebody somewhere, told somebody somewhere who told us. So tradition has blessed us, and I think it's really good that we can honor that. But at the same time, those folks that went to Queensland and came back were more interested in their grandkids meeting Jesus than us keeping on doing what we'd always done. So that really helped us. Um, and there was a thir the third question from Rodney. I don't think we're going to have time now because there's folks coming back in. But Rodney wanted to ask, how is it that we can be so confident in the culture that we're in with all of the various needs for political correctness and sensitivity and all the rest of it? How can we be confident that the words and the message of Jesus still have credibility? And I, I, what I hear in the question is, because we believe that that's true, how do we go with that? I'm really confident 
that they do. I'm really, really confident that the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the character of Jesus is timeless. And you know, I'll say one thing. With the people in the younger generation that I've had contact with in particular, they've got quite a lot of problems with church. Quite a lot of problems with church, but very few problems with Jesus. Very few problems with Jesus. So if you actually really look at how did Jesus deal with the woman caught in adultery? How did Jesus deal with people who were from other nations and from other countries? How did Jesus deal when religious people were trying to throw stones? How did Jesus deal with disciples that argued amongst them? Oh, we kind of like, we actually kind of like him. So that, that's a tidy answer to a huge question. But that gives me confidence. Not that I'm always right, but that Jesus is brilliant and all people of all generations and all faiths, if we introduce them to him, kind of realize this is really good. There's a lot of words. Thank you so much for listening. As I said, I'm happy to uh, chew the fat a little bit with folks throughout the rest of the time here as well. Thank you so much. God bless. See you soon.